1: Welcome
0: to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Matthew Sangrenci. I'm a host with the uh, Middle East uh, channel on New Books Network. And today I'm very delighted and very happy to have Peter Yudis uh, with us. Um, Peter is a professor of Humanities and Philosophy at the Oakton Community, Community College and the author of Marx's concept of the alternative to capitalism, awesome book, and Franz final Philosopher, the barricades, which we are talking about uh, today, and uh, many, many essays on Hegel, Marx, Latin American movements, um, but particularly like one which is about... Um, hegel was not the first one uh, to think of the, uh, the negation of the negation <laughs> and uh, yeah it's uh, pretty pretty cool stuff and uh, the editor of rosa Luxemburg uh, reader and um, i will let him introduce himself in a, in a little bit uh, the book we're um, talking about, as I said, is um, Franz Fanon, the Philosopher of the Bank. and We we will get to talk about a little bit about um, uh, Fanon's biography, but the book is uh, f- through the force of um, um, Fanon's, like in, inside Fanon's head and his philosophy and everything, which is pretty, pretty cool. And I um, will suggest it to anyone who has any Interest in Fanon in movements in uh, colonial studies in uh, anti colonial and anti racist movements. It's it's a pretty amazing book. Hi, Peter. Okay, welcome.
0: Thank you. welcome. Great to have you. It's great to be here. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.
1: Um, uh, so, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, uh, where you come from. But further than I have say so, about all
0: of that. <laughs> right. well, I'm, I'm I'm originally from New York, growing up in the Bronx from working class family in Bronx, New York. I became a, a self-defined socialist when I was probably fourteen years old. Uh, I didn't know much, but I just knew I didn't like capitalism, and I uh, was I was growing up in the period of the civil rights, the anti-war movements, black power movements, all this stuff was, happening when I was growing up and the feminist movement a few years later really burst onto the scene. So there's a lot of things going on uh, that uh, kind of influenced my political direction, but I didn't have any real theoretical background. And I got involved in various political campaigns and found my way around the left in the United States and was not particularly satisfied with a lot of what I found. Uh, I was a sharp critic of Stalinism from pretty early on. Uh, The American left was predominantly um, either social democratic and working within the democratic party and looking, basically socialism reduced to piecemeal reforms that didn't appeal to me very much. And then the other side, the more revolutionary left, which I was more attracted to uh, if they weren't uh, explicitly supporting the Soviet or uh, Soviet union or Mao's China, which, uh, you know, I became rather acquainted with dissonance from those areas and people who were suffering from those regimes, they were still had what I thought was a very, just an adequate explanation of what happened to the Russian Revolution and why a socialist project ended up uh, in single-party state dictatorships. So one thing led to another, and I came across the work of a number of East European Marxist humanist writers when I was still pretty young uh, in college and in the period that I got out of college, left my undergraduate work. Um, uh, People like uh, Mahalo Mokovic, people like Karol Kosik, very important Czech uh, Marxist humanist philosopher. And through that, I discovered that actually there was a Marxist humanist current that was in the United States, which I had no idea of. I thought that this was a political philosophical current among dissidents in Eastern Europe, that mm-hmm. uh, I had no idea anybody in America was doing this sort of thing. Least of all that the individual who was uh, one of the you know, founding figures in, in U.S. Marxist humanism was living in Detroit, of all places. So uh, I ended up traveling to Detroit at her invitation when I got to study some of her work and got acquainted uh, with her ideas and her a political philosophical tendency of Marxist humanism. And then after a number of other things that went on, I uh, uh, ended up a number of years later, um, uh, near the end of her life, uh, being asked to move to Chicago to be her secretary. So that's what I did for the last couple of years of Domenovskaya's life. And it was a great opportunity to you know, work directly with somebody who was uh, both a great mind and a great person, but also in her own way, a kind of historical figure. Uh, as one first person to, you know, publish a translation of excerpts of the 1844 manuscripts of Marx, who did a lot of work on Lenin's philosophic notebooks, and was trying to, you know, develop a very unorthodox, but, uh, um, but, um, but nevertheless, a Marxism that would be adequate for uh, the period that we're living in. And so since then, I'm still a devoted Marxist humanist, I'm a member of the International Marxist Humanist Organization. And along the way, uh, I've became a national organizer for a Marxist-Humanist organization for quite a number of years. I ended up going back into um, getting another degree in philosophy in middle-aged, when uh, uh, doing full-time activist work and freelance writing was not exactly a way to um, have a secure living in the United States. <laughs> so I ended up getting a, a doctorate in the philosophy at Loyola University. And um, I ended up teaching at several places, Loyola, Lewis University, but then I made my way over to Oakton College, where I've been teaching for the last 10 years or so. And I teach uh, humanities and philosophy, as you mentioned. Um, but much of my work is, of course, outside of the academic setting at the same time. It's uh, doing work on number figures, including this one who. Uh, you might recognize uh, that is oh, yes. Rosa Luxemburg. Rosa, I didn't wear, wear this shirt intentionally for you, <laughs> but uh, okay, that I did, I guess. And I say am a sociologist, which I'm really not. I mean, I do sociology, but I'm really in philosophy. But who cares? Yeah. Uh, but the point is, um, and I came across, when I, uh, I was the deeper I got into Luxemburg's work earlier a number of years ago, uh, the more I became both, you know, fascinated by her life and work, but also frustrated by how little of her work relatively is in English. There's a lot of her stuff in English or major works for some time. But even today, as of this moment, probably 75% of what she wrote has not been translated into English. And a lot of it hasn't even gotten into German because a lot of Polish writings have yet to be been published or translated into German or any other language. So I got involved in this project of issuing the complete works of Rosa Luxemburg on top of these few other things. And this is actually what I was doing this before I, we came on. I was helping to finish up the editing of the fifth volume of the complete works, which should be out next year. Nice.
1: How many volumes do you think it will end up? Probably about
0: 18 or 19.
1: 18 or 19. Yeah, each awesome. one
0: 600 pages mm-hmm. a piece. So we've got four volumes out. Volume four just came out a few months ago, which is her writings on the 1905 revolution and its aftermath, 1906 to 1909. Okay. Uh, these are directly her writings on actual revolutions. We have three volumes dealing with that. Volume three dealt with uh, up until through 1905. Volume four dealing with 1906 through 1909. And then the fifth volume, which is uh, now in preparation, uh, taking it up until the 1917 Russian and the 1918 German revolutions.
1: Amazing. Thank you. So today's... um... Um, character of the, the person we were talking about one of my uh heroes <laughs> i can say even mm-hmm. uh Franz Omar Fanon or Ibrahim, Brian Fanon depending on uh who were in his life here, <laughs> you're you focusing on uh was born in nineteen twenty five in Martinique and um he um, Fought in World War II. He fought for the independence of Algeria. He wrote probably two of the most important anti colonial, anti racist books ever written. And um, he did some guerrilla work even uh, for, for, for the um, FLN. And uh, he, ma- he married and he had two children, and he managed to do all that before the age of 36. When he died out of uh, uh, because of leukemia, I suppose. And um, you um, well, he, he was famous at his time, uh, but for some time, um, he wasn't um, on anybody's radar, I guess, um, for some time, but now you say at the very beginning of the book, actually, you say the specter of Franz Fanon has returned. Why do you think that is?
0: Right, uh, Fanon has gone as you meant, as you're suggesting, has gone through ups and downs in his career and has been read by different audiences and through different lenses. Uh, so he was certainly seen as part of the activist crowd in the 1960s as a, a pro- kind of a, a prophetic figure in the uh, uh, within the third world revolutions and rightly so. Um, but um, a lot of his legacy was kind of read in a kind of a one-sided way, especially since a lot of people focused on the first chapter of Wretched of the Earth on violence. And it became this kind of known as this possible revolutionary violence, which had its place in Fanon's work, and it's an important dimension of his work, but that's not the whole of Fanon, and that's not even yes. the of what Fanon was after. And then, of course, that changed with the, re- with the decline of revolutionary movements by the time you get to the 1980s and 90s, especially within academia and the disenchantment of many left-wing academics with real prospects for social transformation, he becomes kind of recuperated into this kind of discourse of discourse, discourse theory uh, in a certain way And post-colonial studies to a certain extent deals with him in in kind of abstracted from the kind of revolutionary politics that really, you know, shaped his work and everything. Um, But I think what really brings him back into life was the, um, the movements that ended up culminating in 2020 were going on for a long while beforehand, not just in the United States but elsewhere in the world, um, against police abuse, uh, for Black lives, and a kind of response to resurgent racism uh, in this stage of capitalism that's characterizing much of the globe. And uh, Fanon as being one of the most um, you know profound th- thinkers about the problem of race and racism. Yeah. Just took on um, enormous resonance. Uh, and so when I was asked to do this book on Fanon back in 2015, uh, you know, there was some, there was, of course, there's always been interest in Fanon, but um, I didn't realize that within like three years, like a dozen other books would be published. I mean, it's, if yeah. you would have to update a book every year to take up with all the other scholarship and other debates and everything else going on. And it's not just within academic setting, as I think you're aware in the very first pages of my of my book, I mentioned being at a demonstration in New York after Eric Garner, um, to, yeah. Back, the yeah, killed by the police, choked to death uh, in a chokehold. Um, yes. people have uh, young kids were holding. I soon called them kids, young activists, maybe they were high school students' age, essentially, were holding a banner saying, We revolt because we can no longer breathe. <laughs> as <laughs> as <laughs> Franz Fanon said, so I see, wow, Fanon has hit the streets again. Yeah. So, Fanon's been pulled out of the academy at the same time as it's expanded his influence in the academy, and this from all kinds of different directions from everything from Hegel studies, very interesting works have been done on the side of Hegel studies on Fanon to uh, critical race theory, to philosophical perspectives on race, and also within queer theory and feminist studies, et cetera. There's a lot of interest in Fanon. Not that he was either a feminist, nor was he an advocate of uh, LGBTQ liberation. He was very backward on that question, frankly. But uh, people can read Fanon through their lens of their struggles especially on questions like the battle for recognition, inferiority complex, okay. these contradictions. In the case and of the other. Yeah. yeah, so he he, re- he re-enters uh, the field of today's intellectual and political debate.
1: Excellent. So, um, if um, if you're okay, with it, let's get into the nitty-gritty of the things, because you uh, put up um, Fanon against a lot of the giants of, um, especially European uh, philosophy, mm-hmm. and um, you show how he has been under um, some of their, under the influence of some of their uh, concepts, but all, you also show that he has uh, gone against some of them, especially um, um, like I. 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 Daniel start. He he gets uh, a lot from them, but he also revolts against some parts of them. And mm-hmm. um, uh, to me, that was a, like the like the the gist of the book. It was like all over the uh, the book, and um, it helped me a lot understanding them and him at the same time. So, if um, you agree, uh, we can. Uh, start dropping names and then uh you can probably um tell tell us um how you feel um comes out of those the the struggles against them um so his difference with uh heidegger mm-hmm. is one of the one of the ones that i uh, i really liked um you know, thrownness projection mm-hmm. into the world yeah could you explain that please
0: right i mean i think uh Fanon, first of all, there's not much evidence of Fanon directly engaging Heidegger. Uh, what he got from Heidegger, I think he got mediated through Sartre. Uh, and Meloponti, who was his teacher in Lyon, and others, uh, probably Levinas as well, uh, who he, we don't have a record of any direct personal connection, but he certainly read some of Levinas's work near the end of his life. Um, and, and I think for the same thing that it would have attracted him to some aspects of Heidegger, and I would say some aspects, the same thing that and on another level, greatly attracted him to Sartre, uh, but in a different way, because um, what Heidegger does essentially is give an ontologation an of alienation. That is, alienation is, is a state of being for Heidegger, not a transient historical development. Um, you probably have heard the, uh, the, uh, the claim that's been circulated for so many decades, uh, originally by Lucien Goldman that uh, Heidegger wrote Being in Time, in part as a response to Lukács's Reification Essay of 1923, uh, where Lukács extends the concept of reification or alienation from the labor process to the realm of thought itself uh, and all cultural formations associated with it. To the extent of whether that's true or not, and there's a long debate I won't get into about that, um, this is something that when Fanon is dealing with race and racism, he sees this alienated world that existentialism sees, and that Sartre portrays very vividly with what you mentioned, the gaze of the other and the objectification of the other, etc. He sees this as, as, as very helpful in his own grappling with racial discrimination. However, he's proceeding from a completely different ontological basis from Heidegger. Yeah. Um, because he's not assuming the ontology, he says there is no ontology of race, okay? So there's no ontology of race, there's no ontology of alienation, okay? There's no ontology of racial alienation, at least, and mm-hmm. certainly no ontology of alienation. In Marx, of course, the question of the alienation of labor is not an ontological category, it's an historically specific category. Labor itself is an ontological category insofar as it simply is an expression of, of capacity for conscious, purposeful activity. Yes. But th- there's no value judgment implied in that one way or the other. It doesn't necessarily lead to a meaningless empty world, right? Or the or, or negativity that has no positive significance flowing from it. So when Fanon begins his book, Black Skin, White Masks, by saying humanity is a yes resounding with cosmic harmonies, right? A very beautiful expression he kind of opens his book with. And he repeats yeah. this kind of formulation repeatedly in his work. as this very positive affirmative view of human potential. This is his anti-Heideggerian <laughs> side, I would argue. What he's drawing from uh, Sartre, and perhaps indirectly Heidegger via Sartre, because again, we don't have any evidence of a direct uh, reading on this part of Heidegger, Um, that doesn't mean there wasn't some, but we don't have evidence of it, is uh, Sartre certainly, he thinks, captures the reality of, well, hell is other people. Mm. Well, to a person discriminated against racially, hell is other people. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) very much. Yes. So, um, so I'm being real brief here, but I mean, it's more elaborate than this, but, but he sees the um uh, capturing this reality on one level and he brings it down to his level as the lived experience of a black person, but there too, he's not proceeding from Sartre's um, um, standpoint. If you read the transcendence of the ego and Sartre and how Sartre understands the Ego, it was in his first philosophical works before he writes Being and, and Nothingness. And you compare that to what Fanon makes out of Hegel, right? Uh, in the concluding section of Black Skin, White Masks, you see they're going in very, very different directions. He actually says in Black Skin, White Masks that Sartre has forgotten about the, uh, that uh, there is a positive moment in losing oneself in the night of the absolute. And the mm. positive moment in losing oneself in the night of the absolute is the transcendence out of alienation that becomes possible? Sartre, of course, was wanted to go in that direction. He wanted to to conceptualize, worked hard to do so. The transcendence of alienation, but when he does so, and this is the biggest debate, the difference between Sartre and Fanon, he basically says, "Well, the race struggle is very pivotal struggle. The struggle against racism is very pivotal, but it's still not universal because it's not that's not in the level of the class struggle, and so it's a it's a secondary term or a minor term in the dialect yes. of the struggle for universal self-mutual recognition. Now, Sartre, I mean, Fanon at that point to say, uh-uh, right? He's not denying that the race struggle has to be, is not an end in itself. Right? The struggle against racism can't be detached from the struggle against capitalism. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you can't jump to the absolute like a shot out of the pistol. And he feels that Saad has is moving too quickly past the particularity and contingency of the black, black lived experience, yeah. you know, trying and he, he feels sort of trying to pull him out of his body to take him to the universal class struggle. Uh, that famous phrase that he uses, black, uh, Sartre, he says, does not realize that the, the black man suffers in his body differently than the white man, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, this is something he taught. I mean, I think Sartre realized when he reads, you know, black skin white masks, that Sartre modifies his position on some of these issues to some degree, but he, it's, it's, a, it's a very subtle dialectical move that Fanon is working out in that book, and I would argue on just a, a different level, but the same argument in Wretched of the Earth, where he's arguing for national liberation as an indispensable moment in the liberation struggle, but he's saying it can't stop at national liberation. There has to be a movement from national to social consciousness, but you can't skip over the national moment in order to get to social consciousness.
1: Excellent. We'll get to nationalism um, uh, a, a little bit later. Um, then you go into Fan's indebtedness to phenomenology, and he, he was a student of Merleau Ponty, but yes. he, he, didn't, he didn't like him very much. But <laughs> but you you yeah. he say he is indebted to him, and um, the, like all the the idea of the consciousness never being disembodied. could uh, you, you to, to explain that a little bit?
0: Right. I mean, uh, uh, again, this is uh, they, uh, Lewis Gordon, for instance, has a very good uh, discussion of this in his book on Phenome, the crisis of, of European so- uh, civil society, uh, that we don't have evidence there either that phenomenon directly read or studied Husserl, who was, of course, the founding figure of phenomenology. But uh, he was able to get plenty, I'm sure, through the mediation of Merleau-Ponty, which has its you know, complications because there's not an identity there either between Husserl and Merleau-Ponty. He was heavily influenced as well by Heidegger. And Heidegger, yeah. Merleau-Ponty, and Husserl, of course, go in very different directions. But uh, the point is, is that um, there, there is this um, uh, uh, notion about the, the, uh, uh, the, the, um, the bodily schema right yeah. your your body is the schema by which consciousness itself is predetermined okay and so for, for known, this is something you'll find in, in Husserl's Cartesian Meditations, right? There's a concept that's developed there quite brilliantly by Husserl, who's trying to break out, of, despite what he's often accused of, he's breaking out of the Cartesian framework in that work, mm-hmm. despite the title of the book, he's being very polite to Descartes, but he's breaking out of the Cartesian framework by denying mind-body dualism, uh, mm-hmm. talking about the bodily schema as the predetermined structure of consciousness, okay? Okay as predetermining the very structure of consciousness. Well, this fits right into Fanon's program, right? Of trying to, because racism is based on epidermal considerations, right? The, the visualization or the interpretation of what's visual in skin color, then it's socially constructed to infer all sorts of stereotypes, prejudices and whatnot, which informs consciously and unconsciously the gaze of the other towards that person of color. Yeah. So the bodily schema and what he draws from Melo-Ponty in terms in terms of that in his work is very, very important for Fanon. But what's curious is it's kind of a parallel there between what he draws from Freud and what he draws from Ponti and what he takes doesn't take from either one in a way, because uh, Ponti, as you kind of alluded to, uh, he goes up to him after one of his lectures apparently and says to him, hey, you know, uh, but you don't talk about race, right? And Meloponti was a bit of a cult fish, you know, kind of probably just said, okay, well, that's not what I'm talking about. Why <laughs> are you <know>? <laughs> <This> <laughs> well, is asking me that question? Uh, so, so, but Fanon takes that concept of the bodily schema and he concretizes it and fleshes it out in terms of his own lived experience in a way that Meloponti does, doesn't, just as Freud, of course, uh, in talking about the the, the, the trauma that's influenced by uh, by the individual life experience of the child, right, and etc., cetera, and, and how uh, re, 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 uh, I, I, infantile anxiety and infantile um, suffering uh, becomes internalized by the individual into an entire rep- repressor apparatus. You know, Fanon is not a Freudian, but directly in orthodox sense, but he draws that from Freud, but then says to Freud, but you're not looking at the social side of this in terms of yeah. what happens when this is racially inscribed. And then he turns on Hegel, right? And now he looks at Hegel in a similar way. Well, this is this incredible dialectic of so-called master-slave, really lordship and bondage, uh, this kind of struggle yeah. between the, the dominant and the less dominant forces in society. But here, too, race is abstracted out of the picture. So what happens when we put race into the picture? How is it complicated? all these standard narratives you get in the history of European philosophy and psychology. And so Fanon is um, in one sense doing something very simple, right? I mean, he's, he's, he is living up to the basic phenomenological notion that uh, you bracket out that which falls outside of your realm of lived experience until you find evidence in a broader philosophical sense for any judgment you would make about falls outside but what falls inside that realm of lived experience has to be philosophically articulated. And that's what he does drawing on these different thinkers, but also he has a criticism of all of them because they're not looking at the world from his lens.
1: From his embodied uh, experience, like lived experience in the body of um, a black man who was fighting for the Freedom of the white man in France, right? That's that's when it comes to the um, uh, next question, <laughs> moment of decision, right? Fanfan's moments of decision. He wants to go and um, fight for the uh, French um, uh, free army, and uh, his um, of him. Oh, well probably not You shouldn't and then he, he goes there and a lot, there was a there's been a lot of uh, explanations but that uh, Albert uh, Memmi I think is one of, yeah. one of my favorites in uh, exp- like explaining that but you also explained that very well Um. Uh, so France um, uh, Fannin's uh, moment of decision what is that
0: Well, he's very young, right? He's like 17, 18 years old. Uh, So he literally scoops out of his brother's wedding secretly to take a little raft over to Dominica, right next to Martinique, to join the Free French Army of Charles de Gaulle, right? Which doesn't sound like a particularly revolutionary act, but he's very young and he's very idealistic. And he sees that uh, an injury to one is an injury to all. So there's an injury being... uh, And of course, he's growing up in the West Indies, in the Lesser Antilles, which you have to understand, it's at that period... um, black consciousness, consciousness of one's African ancestry, consciousness of one's pride in one's cultural, political uh, heritage, et cetera, as a black person is suppressed, right? So uh, this is something that is suppressed not only externally, it's also suppressed internally by the victims of colonialism. Mm -hmm. And Fanon in a certain sense is writing his own autobiography in a way in his works, because he comes to realize that that's a reflection of an inferiority complex, right? Mm -hmm that has to be uh that has to be transcended in the in each in, in the living individual but in any case he he goes on this route and he ends up in the in the uh, French military and it doesn't take him long to discover what a mistake he's made uh because it's such a racist institution and the way that uh blacks were treated the way arabs were treated etc uh just absolutely revolted him and by the time he's seriously injured uh you know in southern france after the a summer 44 invasion, the one they never talk about. They always talk about D-Day. They don't talk about the one in the south of France, but, you know, the war was kind of winding. I mean, it was bigger, but anyway, the- <laughs> it was bigger. <laughs> the one in the south. Um, by that time, he realizes that, um, you know, uh, this is not a fight uh, that he is a black man um, anymore, sees himself in. Yeah. Uh, and he becomes radicalized, but he doesn't become a revolutionary in the sense we understand him now at that point, right? He goes back to Martinique, uh, then he really doesn't know what he's going to be doing with himself. More or less, he gets this equivalent of a GI bill to go back to France and have free education, and he wants to study to be a dentist. Right. So, I mean, it's not that's his initial choice, and then he ends up in the medical faculty, of course, and then decides dentistry is out. He ends up getting interested in psychiatry, and when he goes to Algeria in 1953 to work in Bleus um, Jeanville outside of Algiers, uh, he's not going there for political reasons. Right. He, he's going. He wanted to be in. Uh, in sub saharan Africa uh, to directly experience, um, you know, practice of psychiatry in a, in a, in a, from a global Southern perspective, but uh, he couldn't get, he didn't get the position in Senegal that he was looking for. So he ends up in Algiers, kind of by accident, and then kind of by accident, he's there just a few months later after he gets there. Of course, the FLN emerges with the birth of the Algerian revolutionary movement in the end of 1954, and Fanon becomes swept up in it and avoid becoming swept up in it. Uh, And then, of course, as the saying goes, the rest is history. Um, But uh, I think your point is, is that, you know, what Fanon says, and is always an interesting question that who is Fanon's audience? Who is he writing for? Was he writing for Algerians? Was he writing for black Africans? Was he writing for Frenchmen, right? Because his books, both of them are published in France, right, in French, okay? (laughs) I don't get into Arabic until long after his, much after his death, okay? So, well, let alone Farsi, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so wh- who was he writing for? That's always an intriguing question to think
1: yeah. Then didn't, didn't Sartre say um, to the white Frenchman that this book is not yours? I mean, he's not writing for you, so... Yeah.
0: Yeah. I Well, then, why well, was Sartre reading the book? Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I write, writing uh, introductions. <laughs> well, yeah, right, exactly. You know, I think... Uh, I know what to speak for Fanon on this because we don't have a written record of it. But from what Alice Turkey reports and others, uh, it doesn't appear that Fanon was so thrilled with that preface by Sartre. Of course, it was only you know very, very shortly yes. before his death. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, the two things that that's that statement of Sartre, which I think is problematic, and his really his elevation of, Sartre, of Fanon's writings on violence, mm-hmm. uh, kind of out, it kind of out Fanon, Fanon. He out Fanon's Fanon on that. Yeah, uh, he overdoes it. And um, that's the rec- and then you so then and then you get this kind of Haren, Hannah Arendt type of reading of Fenon, which is frankly quite ridiculous, yeah. that positing a metaphysics of violence and all of this. Uh, that's been widely debunked by a great number of Fenon scholars, and uh, I'm just you know so to speak riding on the wave of their of their own work who came yeah. before me. Um, th- that's not what Fanon's primary object was, although it's a very important point. And I think he understood that any effort to challenge the fundamental structures of alienation, we're not just talking about you know, national oppression, we're not just talking about general inequality, but whether it's on race or whether it's on capital, um, is going to involve a reaction from the ruling class interest that's gonna be bloody. And I think you know, we see so much proof of this, it doesn't, I mean, just look what even just happened in the last couple of weeks in Peru, right? Uh, yeah. Castillo, you know, whatever you may say about him, he was trying to do something, representing the indigenous voice for the first time in, in a yeah. long time in the Peruvian government, and look what they did to go to go after him. And so it's not an accident that a lot of people in Peru are picking up the gun right now to uh, do something about that. We'll have to yeah. see how it plays out, but uh, Fanon would not, be, <coughs> would not be surprised by this sort of development. Of course. Okay. <laughs>
1: Um, so we get to black skin white masks. So um, you say he um, he does um, depend on um, sorts and concept and understanding of being to to make it um, to 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 think of the of colonialism as shaping the being of the colonized subject, right? So um, the, the being of colonized subject is. Uh, is never ontological as you say mm-hmm. is it's it's always um structured by the um, colonizer right yes and um and uh, from there he goes to uh saying that there's no ontology of blackness you you already said that he believed there is no ontology of the race but mm-hmm. he's, he's also very focused on blackness and From there, he goes a little bit against his old friends in the negritude movement, right? Can you explain that a little
0: bit? Right. He's not a black essentialist. Uh, Now, Fanon is aware, uh, given where he's coming from and what he's experienced in the Caribbean, in France, in Algeria, um, that uh, given the ubiquitousness of racialized ways of seeing and behaving, that white society has uh, internalized and then propagated. A person of color, uh, regardless of their class position, um, regardless of their tone of their skin color, right? Regardless of their actual background or every, anything else, will be subjected to this gaze of the white that has this incredibly negative uh, connotation to it. In that sense, people of color—the term "people of color" makes sense. A, 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 somebody from um, from um, from Argentina, even uh, may not view themselves as a person of color at all. I mean, very often oh, yeah. no, I'm, I'm white, right? And then you come mm-hmm. to the United States, and all of a sudden, ah, but you're Latino. So um, now you get you get you get viewed, you get gazed in this kind of a way. But yeah. that's not that's a pure that's purely sociogenetic, right? That's purely a social genetic way in which the white gaze uh, uh, functions. Okay. Now it's very tempting to then say, oh, because of that. This is the way to counter this is to affirm, as it were, an an essential identity of all of those who are uh, not white. And Fanon rejects that approach. And that is very, very clear, uh, not just in Black Skin, White Mask, but even more so in Wretched of the Earth. Uh, He argues that he, he acknowledges the last chapter of Black Skin, White Mask is what? He talks about the difference between a professional who's a uh, a doctor of medicine in Guadeloupe. he uses that as an example, and a doc worker in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, um, you know, um, who's a black worker who has no formal education at all. And says so yeah. they will experience racial alienation. They both experience it, but in radically different ways. Okay. Um, and he himself understands that. He is really using his own autobiography as it were to identify with the first example of uh, the black professional. But he knows that the black working class experiences this alienation in a different way, even though they're both experiencing fundamental racial alienation. Yeah. And so there's many, many, there's a lot of evidence of this. I'll give you just one example of this. Um, I live in Chicago, you go down to Cook County Jail. Look, I mean, look, let me just preface it by saying this. You don't have to be black working class, obviously, we all know this, to get pulled over by the cops if you're black or Latino or whatnot, uh, and, um, you know, be, a, be harassed by the police. Uh, I mean, yes. worse than that. Um, but if you go to Cook County Jail, you're not going to find, you're going to find very, very, very rarely is there somebody who's a, a wealthy a person of color who's sitting in Cook County Jail. And why is that? Because they got the resources to get themselves bailed out, right? Yeah. So it's not quite a caste system, right? It's not, it's, 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 it's not necessarily. So straightforward, We're not, yeah. not, with things. It, it, it's it, it, a, a black essentialist perspective on this, or it, it just doesn't hold up to the facts of what's actually prevailing, which doesn't minimize the ubiquitousness of racism, regardless of class position, right? But there's still going to be, there's still a fundamental difference here in terms of how that plays itself out in concrete terms and in terms of how somebody reacts to it, okay? So, uh, yes, Fanon uh, was not a black nationalist, Um, but he was not somebody who who argued that we should... Minimize or skip over the importance of black nationalism. Okay, so he—it's he, a—it's a—it's a—he's a delicate analysis here of the necessity to affirm racial pride in order to lift yourself out of the a sense of inferiority that existing society inculcates in, in, in us who are discriminated against and marginalized. Uh, but nevertheless, that does not—we don't take that as one's being, right? We right. take that as what is what is socially constructed in terms of our lived experience.
1: Yes, and um, I really like that um, part when, when you say he goes a little bit against Hegel and says, um, yeah, the masters, as, as, as soon as master-slave um, relationship is done, nothing, nothing might change. I mean, yes, a little bit changes for the slave, but not, not, not totally, not completely, because the social, economic, and specific economic relations of domination is still there even if um, you get out of that um, master slave uh, mentality
0: well this i'm glad you're raising this because this is something that's widely misunderstood i think because people don't read hegel carefully enough and they too <laughs> or they read they don't read the whole of the phenomenology they read the master slave dialectic so called uh, section on self consciousness and they and that's and, and if you do that without seeing its place within the work as a whole and the argument in the work as a whole, then what's going on in the master-slave dialect that can easily be misconstrued. So let me give you, this is where, you know, uh, a point that I, I, I like to point out is that it's true. It looks like what's everything you said is true, that it looks like at least Hegel is saying that we have the, let's just talk the worker and the, the master and the slave or the worker and the employer, right? They're involved in this battle for recognition. Uh, Hegel doesn't, of course, include race in the bargain. Uh, yes. there's there's no there's no determination of race at all here. So we assume they're from the same race. There's just a bunch of white folks having a quarrel among themselves. Okay, All right, very nice. So um, but the point is here is that the, the slave that is it the dependent consciousness or appears to be at first actually turns out to be an independent consciousness because the slave realizes who their work, that uh, and, and the products that they produce for the master, that actually they are the active agent in the dialectical relationship here. The master mm-hmm. is the passive agent. So what looks like the dominant force, the master is actually dependent. And what looks like the subordinate factor, the slave is independent. So therefore, through their struggle for recognition, the slave gains a mind of their own and they achieve the recognition that uh, they're fighting for from the, ma- uh, from the master. And then for Nome, the argument goes, looks at this and says, well, that may be true when it's, Uh, the race question doesn't enter in, but Hegel doesn't uh, take account of when race is a factor and then there is no recognition despite the work uh, that the slave does because uh, the master is not going to acknowledge that individual as human because they see them as subhuman viewing racial terms. All this is true, but also misleading because Hegel doesn't say at the end of the master-slave dialectic that the battle for recognition has been won. He doesn't say there is mutual recognition. He says there is a battle for mutual recognition. He says the slave gains a mind of her her own. And then he says, no sooner is this achieved than the slave realizes that actually they don't have a mind of their own because um, the slave becomes aware of, okay, I'm involved in this battle with this master, right? Now, as it were, put him out of the way in so far as my consciousness is concerned, right? I realize I'm not dependent on him any longer. Now you turn your attention from self, the dialectic of self consciousness to the relationship of self consciousness and the objective world, right? And uh-huh. now you realize, well, wait a second, I'm just this one individual, I'm this one slave that's battling, but the world hasn't changed. I may have changed in my consciousness, but the world hasn't. The world is not coming to me with open arms, right? So you you become aware of the gap between yourself and others on a whole higher level. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, it, the dialectic, where does it lead to? What, When you end the master-slave dialectic, you go to stoicism, skepticism, and unhappy consciousness, right? These are philosophies, Hegel says, that are fit for slaves, <laughs> okay, at okay. least Stoicism. In other words, you realize, oh, I, I can't overcome, I haven't overcome the separation of my subjectivity in the objective world, so therefore, well, I'll become a Stoic, I'll just kind of like, nah, I don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, stereotype Stoicism, but you basically an acceptance a passive attitude. So mm-hmm. you haven't achieved rec- mutual recognition. You don't begin to get mutual recognition developed in the phenomenology, according to Hegel, until you get to uh, the section on morality, spirit certain of itself, right? In the, the latter part of the phenomenology, in which he brings in the social relationship of needing to be recognized by a community through social contract, right? And he gets into the entire Rousseauian and Hobbesian, et cetera, the social contract theory. And then that breaks down too, because we're not at absolute knowledge yet. And only then do you get an intimation of mutual recognition after you've gone through the 800 pages. So while Fanon is right in saying Hegel doesn't take account of race, so therefore he's going to read the master-slave dialectic in a way different than Hegel, on another level, he's confirming what Hegel says. This is a point that almost everybody misses. Because and he's confirming what Hegel is is suggesting, but in a way Hegel himself doesn't spell out, that you don't get mutual recognition at the end of the master-slave dialectic. The struggle's got to go on. Right, it's just like the worker doesn't get the worker who who who, who obtains a recognition from the from the employer. That's not real recognition, right? That's just a juridical formal recognition of the fact that there's a contractual relationship of wage labor. Yeah. The boss recognizes you for your labor power, and so far as you give it to him, you recognize the boss insofar as okay, you're not going to fire me and you're going to keep me in my job, right? There is a yeah. kind of mutual relationship there, but it's not it's not a recognize to use your phrase. It's not a recognition of your true being. That is not something you can achieve through the dialectic of self-consciousness, according to Hegel. You have to go beyond self-consciousness to reason. Yeah. And then when you go to reason, you find out it falls apart there. And then you have to go to spirit and it falls apart there. And then you have to go to religion. And that has its own problems. And then finally you get to, and even when you get to absolute knowledge, the movement doesn't end. So um, it, this is why Hegel you know, calls his work a highway of despair. Highway of despair. Yeah, so the <laughs> phenomenology is a highway of despair. He says you struggle to achieve all of these accomplishments, and you reach these higher stages. But every stage you reach opens up new vistas of what you have not yet achieved. Okay, yeah. what not yet, what you are very much alienated from, and so you, you you now start a new cycle of struggle. It's like the revolutions never end. Never end. Permanent revolution. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think think Marx caught that in Hegel, by the way. Most Marxists have not. This nonsense about, oh, it ends in synthesis and, um, you know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and it's a closed ontology and the movement comes to an end. Um, I don't think most Hegel scholars today don't buy that kind of stuff. Uh, And I think... uh, Uh, Marxists are, some of them are beginning to wake up to this. (laughs) A a, a, a long time where you got this kind of stereotypical view of of Hegel and Marxism that um, doesn't, which is not to say that Hegel is directly applicable to our social problems today. There's a lot of mediations that you have to endure. But I think there's a lot in Hegel to to learn from.
1: Yeah, and Fallon will help help us uh, a lot in that mediation, right? um i uh, do like to um, quote uh, any book that i um, uh, try to introduce and um uh, like there were so many nice parts to quote from mm-hmm. but on um, page 51 you you kind of went wise um uh, fanon and uh, i i'd really like that and i would like to read it okay um So it says, Farron is concretizing Merleau-Ponty's point, itself derived from the work of Husserl, that consciousness is not a free-floating signifier, but is inseparable from the bodily schema which we talked about. Yes, I do not like how this society represents me in terms of my body, but since I can only know the world through the schema it has imposed upon it, I am compelled to engage the world on its basis. However, I have made the decision to do so on my own terms. The gaze of the other has fixed me into this bodily schema, but I'm not merely an object. I'm an embodied subjectivity that can act, move, and think. I do possess free will, even in being treated like an object uh, or being objectified. Your gaze has robbed me of my freedom, but I can only be robbed of something that I have. Really like that part, um, and uh, okay. Let's now go to a little uh, um, parts that are more physical than uh, theoretical uh, yeah. in his life. Um, mm-hmm. You say um, so the massacre of uh, Setif, the Setif massacre that happens in uh, nineteen forty-five, right, May 8th, if uh, May nineteen forty-five. But he's not. Uh, finally he's not uh, contacted by the FN. Um, until 54, right? November 54. Okay, it doesn't
0: actually exist in 45, the but That's a major event that leads to its formation.
1: Yeah. And um, he said he, said that he writes uh, a letter to Senghor so that he can go to Senegal and starts uh, start um, the, the psychiatry there, and uh, his, um, his uh, letter is never answered. Mm-hmm. Well, th- thank God, I suppose, uh, for the uh, greatest culture I, <laughs> show, show. <laughs> in the world, uh, which uh, makes him go to Algeria <clears throat> not knowing much about it. He just goes there and uh, starts, um, well, some of his, um, uh, you call them, I don't know how to p- pronounce his name, to Toscal. Okay, so he learns a lot from him and he adds to that and he goes to Algeria to actually um uh, uh, like practice what what he thinks uh, so can you talk about a little bit that that transition of him as a psychiatrist a, a psychiatrist who works who wants to be a pan-africanist to an actual gor- gorilla for the FLN
0: right uh it. This also often uh, we you said in the beginning of our discussion all the things that Fanon did by the time he was thirty five. It becomes all the more amazing when you consider that for his entire life he was never an academic. He never worked in a university position, and he was never in private practice. He was working at a you know at a state mental hospitals, right? I mean, he was a, psych, a psychiatrist running a significant wing or ward of a mental hospital has a lot of administrative duties besides a lot of of course you know practical application and treatment therapy with patients and everything so this guy had a very very busy schedule uh he probably only slept about three or four hours a night from what people tell us right um so he, he goes there with of course he has a political consciousness of course he has political he has politics when he gets to algeria but he's not directly connected to the, uh, to the emerging Arab liberation movement. And he has had no experience other than through the Negritude movement, of uh, direct contact with African uh, liberatory movements. Uh, and of course, Negritude itself has a compromising relationship in some respects to those more yeah. political movements on the continent at the time. So, um, so he, he, but he, he's a quick learner, okay? So he, he gets to Algiers and he now plunges into, with all the background that he has before him, he plunges into to the extent that he can, uh, surreptitiously uh, doing a uh, support activity and work for the FLN. And then he gets, gets drawn into the, the internal debates uh, within the FNLN uh, concerning revolutionary strategy, programmatic uh questions of how to advance the movement. Fanon, for instance, comes out strongly in favor of the wing that advocates urban guerrilla warfare, uh, which is something that people should keep in mind who think he only talked about the peasantry. Um, but um there's all kinds of ups and downs in that relationship within the FNLN, some of which are, you know, I document or discuss in my book. Yeah. Um, but the, what ends up happening of course, is he has to uh, be very, very careful, can, cannot be openly identified with the FNLN while he's working as a psychiatrist, even while he's sheltering guerrilla fighters and giving them medical attention as well as psychiatric attention you know, in, his, in his hospital or in various quarters to the extent that he can. The French government catches on to what's going on, and he realizes that his time is numbered. That is, his life is on the line. That they're out to get him. Uh, so he resigns in a very famous resignation letter, and he has to go into exile uh, in uh, first in Tunisia and then in well, first in Morocco, then Tunisia, and then back and forth and such. Uh, and by this time, he is now, of course, he's writing for El Mojahid, uh, so he's uh, a, a, a practicing journalist for the. Um, the exile uh, wing of the uh, Algerian revolutionary movement. He's meeting all kinds of revolutionaries. He's in Ghana in 1958. He meets Malcolm X when Malcolm X meets him. Uh, there is all kinds of people from Fouette, Lumumba, et cetera, all kinds of folks from the African continent that he's now in direct relationship with. And he is continuing to work as a psychiatrist uh, while he's in Tunisia for a certain period, but he runs into some pretty bad, Relationships with the director of the unit that he was working in, uh, that makes it clear that he can continue in that capacity. But there's also, it's the year of you know, the African revolutions are really bubbling now in 1958, 1959, 1960. The continent is ablaze. And Fanon, for, uh, for that, then uh, um, becomes a full time roving ambassador for the FLN throughout the African continent. And this is when he travels from everywhere, from Liberia to Ethiopia to the Congo and back, etc. Um, trying to drum up support for the Algerian movement, and also, of course, drumming up support for these other movements that were opposing French imperialism, and and British imperialism, and Portuguese imperialism. He had connections to all these uh, anti-colonial movements.
1: Excellent. So um, um, he he works on the, there with the FN, and, and as as you mentioned. Um, Pretty amazingly in the book he, he, he gets along with some of the um, fallen leaders mm-hmm. but not the others and then there are there's a lot of struggle inside flm and uh, then um, uh, a lot of uh, the uh, countries in the, in the in Africa get uh, independence from their uh, colonizers and um, you you um, you, you illustrate how disappointed he was with the result in many of these situations, so many of these um, uh, countries, with the post-independence um, uh, countries. Um, especially with, um, you You'd you draw a perfect picture, at this, and, and, and I will tell you in a second why I, I, feel, I, I feel like it is perfect. Uh, you draw a, um, a perfect picture of how a lot of these um, um, uh, countries end up with with the national bourgeoisie at the helm of the um, uh, post-independent um, uh, countries um, re- recently freed countries and um, you say why why it is not uh, good and why uh, famine didn't like um, uh, like it very much and um, to me it sounds um, really cool because um, we got to t- talk about a little bit about uh, what, ha- what is happening in Iran right now. Mm-hmm. And um, Fannin's uh, disappointment with the left, with the communists um, in France and a lot of Europe, who he thought were invested in new, new colonialism as you put it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, is exactly what I feel like with, uh, with most of the left, um, yeah. probably not most, but a lot of the left uh, right now, uh, when there is this amazing revolution happening in Iran, a feminist revolution of sorts, of, of, of maybe the first one of, of its kind. And they still keep uh, dragging their legs. Um, uh, you know, we don't want to get into uh, that particular movement uh, or revolution, but um, let's go over why Fannan didn't uh, uh, like it um, and why he was disappointed in the left.
0: Well, the, the second one is is much easier in terms of the French left, the communists and the socialists actively, li- literally supported uh, the, um, the 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 French colonial project, um, and it's often forgotten. The Soviet Union, Stalin did not show any particular interest in the African revolutions. He denounced Nkrumah as a stooge of British imperialism in a speech that he gave in 1957 or 58 or something. So uh, people read the past through certain lenses of more recent developments. It's really when Khrushchev comes in, that Khrushchev is, opens the door uh, to, of course, um, uh, Nasser and others, and. Um, Uh, And, you know, becomes a kind of a benefactor, as it were, in some respect to many anti-colonial movements in Africa and the third world. But the Soviets were not paying really attention. What they were paying attention to was their political relationships in France. And they wanted the French Communist Party to uh, manage their connection with the Gaul because Gaul was hostile to NATO. Right. He didn't want to put He didn't put France into the military wing of NATO. He had adopted a kind of independent stance vis-a-vis US and the United States. So they wanted to play off of these divisions within the Western alliance. And the last thing they wanted to do was get that upset by supporting revolutionaries in Africa, which they didn't think probably had much of a chance of winning anyway. Uh, but within a few years, things changed and they kind of you know, shifted their focus accordingly. But what Fanon was more broadly seeing is that yes, during a national liberation movement, you're going to have a multi-class movement, okay? You're gonna to have to have that. Those people who criticize Fanon by saying, well, he didn't emphasize enough the role of the working class, there was a legitimacy to some of that criticism in some of the contexts, uh, especially if you take a look at the, the Nigerian independence movement, for instance, which had a, heavy, a very significant sect uh, proletarian dimension to it. But it, it kind of misses the point on a certain level, Because Fanon understood one thing that a lot of Marxists still don't understand. You can't make a successful revolution with minoritarian support amongst the oppressed. Now, okay, so Lenin managed to do what he did in 1917, even though the Bolsheviks had minimal support within the peasantry, which was 85% of the population, and he had significant but not majoritarian support in many cases, especially within within a year after the revolution, within even the industrial working class. Okay. Um, he pulled it out and figured out a way to, to seize power and hold on to power. I'm talking about Lenin now, but for no one I think uh, did not see that it was possible to achieve the, ind- the national independence of these African countries without the revolutionaries having deep roots in the bulk of the oppressed masses and su- direct support from the bulk of the oppressed masses. So, um, the national bourgeoisie is one of those forces that comes into the fold and becomes a spokesperson of this movement. But as not fully understood from his reading of Marx and history and everything else, this national bourgeoisie is going to betray the national movement at the first opportunity because what they want is to get the crumbs off the table of imperialism and make a deal with them sooner rather than later, whether it be the Soviets or whether it be the Americans or whoever it is, or even the Chinese when they brought them into Tanzania, right? They want to try to make some kind of Uh, some kind of deal to keep themselves in power and to make themselves, you know, players within the world. So um, he realizes that that would be a great betrayal of the revolution. So you can't, again, it's like within black skin, white masks, you can't skip over the particularity of negritude, right? In that discussion, even though he's critical of it, can't skip over it like Sark kind of does in his debate in black skin, white masks. You also can't skip over the, the, the national component that brings multi-class perspectives together in the fight against imperialism. Now that does pose a problem, however. What happens when you, for known, are in a national liberation movement like the FNLN that has many, many different tendencies, some of it's Islamic in a reactionary sense, some of it is slightly progressive Islamism, we can debate that, some of it which is a very secular nationalism, some of which is Marxist, some which is not. And there's a lot of debates and divisions within the leadership but that is all being tamped down and not being exposed because you're fighting the French and the French killed at least half a million people in Algeria. They were, not gonna, they were looking for any divisions they can make use of within the nationalist movement, which Fanon was fully aware of and he was not going to play into their hands on this. So it's easy for us armchair intellectuals to sit back and look and say, well, why didn't Fanon criticize the murder of Abami, for instance, who was his mentor within the FLN? And Fanon, I think, carried that Question to his own to his grave. I mean, he was very very disturbed by the outcome of that and his the fact that he couldn't or didn't do anything about it. But then again, what would have been the effect of breaking ranks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, but then, but but then once independence is you know, uh, is is coming on the scene. The visage of independence is appearing or even now manifest, like the year 1960. It's a very different story. And that's when he's writing Wretched of the Earth. Now you've got to give an account of uh, what the different forces are within the nationalist movement, which are gonna break up into different tendencies and where is the revolution gonna head? Who's gonna take over and who's not? And that's kind of the context of Wretched of the Earth discussion of revolutionary violence. It's not just revolutionary violence against the colonialists because he's expect I mean a lot of the countries had already achieved independence and without yeah. violence, like Ghana, for instance, and in Guinea, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the question now becomes what's the first thing the national bourgeoisie does upon independence? We've got the guns, you got to give them up, especially you peasants who have been the really the force behind this uh, this independence movement. We have the monopolization of violence because that's what the state is and that's what we now are running the state. And that's what Fanoni is very worried about. So he wants to challenge that monopolization of violence on the part of the bourgeois state, which is going to come out of the national independence movements. Um, and if you pull out what he says about violence out of that context, well, then you end up with like Hannah Arendt's kind of generalizations, which don't tell us very much yeah. uh, on Fanon. But um, I'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Uh, okay, last but not least, his... Um, um, I'd say um, uh, arguably a conflictual uh, relationship with political Islam. Um, polit- oh, sorry, political Islamism. Um, he, um Fanon's relationship with um, political Islamism. You um, go into details of like it wasn't like a no, clear cut um, uh, relationship, and uh, it, the same with the veil. And uh, in today's um, political atmosphere, people just want like uh, one tweet. Uh, uh, to decide uh, about that an issue and Finland's um, relationship with political um, Islam and Veil was far more complicated than that, far more complex than that. Um, so, if, if you could uh, say the two uh, different uh, parts of it. <laughs>
0: Right, uh, I mean, his his correspondence with Ali Shariati is very telling in this regard, uh, which is you know now available in Alienation and Freedom. It's been translated into English. It was translated a long time ago, but it's now available in book form. Um, it, he 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 did not, did not I mean, he was very interested in Islam. He learned a lot about Islam, which he didn't know anything about before he got to Algeria, and he learned a lot when he was there. He was not dismissive of uh, of uh, of Islam or Islamic uh, politic. It, it, within the revolutionary movement, but he was suspicious about uh, it becoming a determining factor, and he tried to warn Ali Shariati about this. Okay, he says, "Yes, there's something I see in what you're saying, but uh, in, he sees that political Islam will be used as a, as a way for the na- for sections of the national bourgeoisie to suppress challenges uh, to their uh, class rule." Uh, by the way, if, if any of our listeners are interested in this, if you study the history of the Indonesian communist movement uh, and how the 1965 massacre of half a million Indonesian communists, which is, of course, largely engineered by Uni- United States State Department, yeah. um, nevertheless, uh, who was the real forces that were behind the generals that were slaughtering the communists in droves? and that was the Islamists, okay? Uh, the conservative uh, Islamists who uh, were part of the national, some of them part of the national independence movement, some of them who now wanted to eliminate any 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 uh, threat from the left. So, and they did so with uh, great determination. So uh, Fanon uh, wasn't alive by the time that happened, but I think he he sees the dangers of, of this uh, kind of phenomenon. So, uh, and in terms of Ali Shariati itself, I mean, I think he's a serious person, but um, he had a very superficial, I think, critique of, to my own view, a very superficial critique of Marxism. He wasn't really critiquing Marxism. He was critiquing Stalinism. And he took the Stalinist dialectical materialist ideology as what was Marx and Marxism. And uh, you can go to to town, you know, uh, tearing that to shreds, which he does. uh, And some things he says are very good. And some things he says are kind of, off, But the point is, he's not getting to the issue. And Fanon was somebody who had a much more sophisticated knowledge in Marxism, even though he didn't associate explicitly with any particular tendency within Marxism. And that was for a reason, because Marxism has had a problem when it comes to the question of race. Okay, but we have to acknowledge that that you don't have to agree with Cedric Robinson's interpretation that says, therefore, we should exit Marxism. No, Cedric Robinson has almost nothing to say about Fanon. His basic argument in black Marxism is, well, CLR James and Du Bois, they were great, they made interesting contributions, but their problem was they still stayed within that Marxist orbit, which Richard Wright did not. Well, take a look at what Fanon has to say about Richard Wright, okay? It was very critical of Richard Wright's uh, turn in the last years of his life. Um, so, for no, I don't think would have gone in that direction. The last thing I'll just say on this, though, is because uh, it's uh, related. To, I'll, I'll bring in the Iran thing a little bit, even if you're reluctant to yourself. Really? And that is, that <laughs> <It> is cool. <laughs> and that is um, uh, this notion that uh, the enemy of your enemy is your friend. That if the United States imperialism is again is, is an opponent oh to the Iranian government, therefore we have to find a way to 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 not to mute our support for the movement in Iran, or even not to express it at all, this is widespread within the left. We're also seeing it in reaction to the Ukraine, Russia's war against Ukraine. We saw that in Russia's war, uh, the the contribution to the suppression of the movement in Syria. Um, And of course, we're seeing it in terms of the reaction to the protests in China. Um, I don't want to say what Fanon would think about these events. Uh, I'm not saying that he had the most highly developed and sophisticated understanding of the nature of the Soviet Union. Uh, and the so-called Eastern Bloc. Um, there was some deficiencies in his in, in his uh, understanding. Like he did not understand the nationalities question in Eastern Europe. He thought that had been solved by the Soviets, which was obviously not true, at least by, I think it's obvious that it's not true. Um, but nevertheless, I think Fanon was far too much a humanist uh, to uh, take that kind of position. I think Fanon would look for what is the wretched of the earth? What are they actually facing? Look at, Do not judge movements by what the bourgeoisie (laughs) says about them. Judge (laughs) movements by what the movements are and what they are trying to express about themselves. And we don't read them through this narrow lens that says that um, we let the ruling class do our thinking for us and say that because, you know, Joe Biden says he supports Ukrainians, that therefore all Ukrainians are either uh, neoliberals or Nazis. uh, Nazis, yeah. This is you know, it's not. It's not the, This is not a. This is not l- looking at, at the world through the lived experience of the victims of of oppression, and that's what Fanon always does in his work, and that's what makes him very valuable.
1: Yeah, and it's very reactionary, I suppose, literally literally, um, and uh, figuratively like, to, to, to react to um, um, a na- national revolution or I don't know, a social revolution or feminist revolution based on what America does or doesn't uh, do in regards to that. Mm-hmm. It's very reactionary, I suppose. So last question. Um, uh, For others, I can ask, uh, okay, what's your next book? But for you, I suppose I have to, okay, uh, what's your next book? And what are you working outside the academy on?
0: (laughs) Well, uh, actually, uh, I just have a new book that just came off the press. So... uh, uh, this is uh, a very short uh, booklet. Uh, it's a new translation oh, that right Anderson right. and Carol Ludenhoff did of the Critique of the Gotha Program, yeah. and I've done a lengthy introduction to it. Uh, Peter Le- Leinbaum also has a, a post to the book. So if you want to see uh, some of my writings on Marx, uh, uh, and people probably know that the, my book on Marx, Marx's Concept, of the Alternative to Capital, oh, yeah. published in Farsi, and it's been in, in Iran. Um, but uh, I'm working on a, see- uh, on a collection of essays that will be... Um, uh, um, a follow-through to my m- m- book, book on Marx. Uh, it'll be entitled, uh, at least provisionally, Thinking the Absolute Reflections on Alternatives to Capitalism, uh, drawing in Hegel, uh, Marx, and Fanon, as well as a number oh. of other thinkers, uh, including are in trying to, uh, a number of essays I've written over the past decade and some new material that's still being written that um, addresses questions of the alternative to capitalism from a dialectical or philosophically grounded perspective. Uh, A piece of just contributed uh, to historical materialism for a special issue they're doing on race and class uh, deals with that issue, which I'm planning to do a bigger study on at some point. How soon I can manage that is a good question, (laughs) but uh, um, uh, what I really see for the future is my two big interests in life, uh, recapturing Marx's uh, uh, critique of value theory. Uh, mm-hmm. and the humanist implications of that critique for envisioning a, a, a viable alternative to capitalism and Fanon's sociogenetic approach in challenging uh, all notions of racial discrimination and the concept, the contribution he made to the struggle against racism to try to put these two together. That's yes. what I want to try to uh, pull off. Um, that is, that and cool. part, you can tell some of my comments would go against the grain of a lot of uh contemporary. Discussions in this matter, which I think uh, either veer off too much towards a class reductionist perspective yeah. or a perspective that veers off too far away from Marx's critique of capital.
1: Excellent. And off academia? In academia? No, off academia, like um, um, outside in the world, like um, what. Um activism are you involved in?
0: Well, actually, uh, I work with the International Marxist Humanist Organization, so you can see I work on IMHO. Uh, I've been there. IMHOjournal.org. Uh, you can see a lot of my writings there and many other Marxist humanists. Uh, you can see a lot of different areas that we're involved in. I've been involved for many years with prison support work, and I intend to continue with this. I'm also more recently uh, help uh, with other with others helping to launch the Ukrainian Solidarity Network. There'll be a in the United States. There'll be a, um, a statement coming out in New Year's Day uh, from the newly formed network uh, that's trying to do uh, a, a, a solidarity with Ukraine that does not uh, line itself up with either polar world capital, whether the U.S. NATO or Russia, um, and. Um, Keeping my fingers on, I've been active in the campaign to defund police in Chicago and keeping my what strength, I can keep my fingers involved in that movement, which is still, (laughs) still very important, suffered some setbacks over the last recent years, and that's all the more reason to remain devoted to it.
1: Very nice. Thank you, Vera. This, this was great. Um, I learn every time I listen to uh, your uh, lectures and podcasts, I learn uh, reading you and I learn a lot talking to you. Thank you very much. Well,
0: thank you Betty. very, very much. And it's a great to see you finally in, in person. And I uh, look forward to further discussion.
1: That would be amazing. Thank
0: you. Thank you.